reading the whole book of Obadiah, 21 verses. We can do this. Alright? So, we're picking it up. Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, or the nations. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made you small among the heathen, the nations. You are greatly despised. This is God talking. The pride of your heart, speaking of Edom, has deceived you. You that dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, who says in his heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, fence or from there will I bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how are you cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of your confederacy have brought you even to the border. The men that were at peace with you have deceived you and prevailed against you. They that eat your bread have laid a wound under you. There is none understanding in them. Shall I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And your mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed, to the end that everyone of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So that's the sentence against Edom because of their crimes that we're about to learn about here, verses 11 through 14. So he says, you who dwell high, who think that you are above it all, God is going to bring you low. But then God is going to support this judgment, this just wrath against Edom. Verses 11 through 14, what are their crimes? In the day that you stood on the other side, or you stood aloof, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. Even you were as one of them. But you should not have looked on the day of your brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, you should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their stub substance in the day of their calamity. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that, sh that did escape. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Okay, pause there again. We've got these crimes that Edom committed against their own brother, Jacob. Remember, Jacob and Esau, brothers. Back, Abraham had Isaac, and then Isaac has these two sons, Esau and Jacob. And they have conflict from the very moment of conception in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. And all the way till their death, there's some conflict, and then the nations continue to have conflict between them. But remember that promise God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12? He said, I will bless you. And he says, those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. This is a profound reality that we see demonstrated throughout history, is that God chose Israel as a special people. And so those that treat them well, they receive the blessing of God. Even if they aren't believers in the one true God, they receive prosperity. And yet those who mistreat God's people, they only meet judgment. And this is what happens to Edom. 
So we have this, we have this judgment of God against Edom, God's vengeance on Esau, if you will. But now let's read verses 15 through 21 that speak of God's victory for Jacob. God's victory for Jacob. Pick it up, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, the nations. As you have done, it will be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. Remember, we talked about that. That's the retributive principle of justice. That in equal measure and in the same way, your crimes, you're going to receive compensation or judgment um, comparable to the crimes you committed. That's the principle that the law talks about. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. We talked about that. Remember? Ezekiel? Um, similar concept, but this one is God's principle for human judges of how do you deal with, um, how do you deal with crime in your society? And then God operates by the same principle. Mr. Peter? I think the big difference between this principle and karma is that in karma, as I understand it, it's, the idea is that the, what happens to you So going along with the concept of reincarnation then. Yeah. Yep. I think my knowledge is that karma that karma basically decides that you're not Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing, we're thankful that God is not an arbitrary judge. He doesn't just give random judgments. That would be dangerous. An all powerful God who just says randomly, Well, that person they're gonna get punished and that person doesn't. No, no. God has given us standards of right and wrong. And he enforces those standards. But we all are aware of them. Because God gave each of us a conscience. And he's revealed himself through creation. Mr. Peter? Another big difference is that karma basically is, oh, you get what you deserve. Mm -hmm. You did good, you get good. You did bad, you get bad. Whereas our understanding is that we all do bad. Mm -hmm. And the only way we can escape getting bad is through the grace of God. Amen. Well put. Amen. Okay, so verse 16 now. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen, the nations, drink continually. Yea, they will drink and they will swallow down, and they will be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, God's holy city, shall be deliverance, and there will be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plains the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel will possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And here's our verse we're focusing on tonight. Verse 21. And saviors shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. That is, that is really the key thought, the key theme of the book of Obadiah, is that God is the one true king. Edom can exalt themselves as much as they want, but yet God is the one true king. So let's walk through this, verse 21, but first I want to hear from you guys. 
What has stood out to you as we've been working through Obadiah so far? Adrian? Amen. God always keeps his promises, both long and short term, and we see visible demonstrations of his faithfulness in history, geography, archaeology, etc. Amen. John? Obadiah, a good example of God's justice. Yeah, it's good. Ezekiel? Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting. That's actually after we finish Obadiah, and then we have a couple um, one-off lessons that we'll be working on. But then we're actually going to Romans nine. That's where we pick up our Roman study. So we're going to go and talk about that. It relates really well with our study in Obadiah. Yeah, it's good. Other things that have stood out to you from Obadiah. Yeah, that's right. Israel has a lot more land that they're promised. I would say that they don't, they aren't going to need it. God's going to give it to us. It's good. Amen. Anything else that has stood out? All right. Well, Let's work, through, let's work through verse 21 here. But uh, just reviewing, remember, the book is written by this prophet Obadiah. What does Obadiah's name mean? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, servant of the Lord. That's it. It's servant of the Lord. Two Hebrew words shoved together. Obadiah means servant of the Lord. And we don't know much about Obadiah, very little about him, other than he probably was very poor. Um, as it was primarily the poor who got left in the land of Judah after the exile to Babylon, if you remember that. We talked about that way back um, 10 lessons ago, so it's been a bit. Um, but it's an oracle of God's judgment against Edom because Edom participated in Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, that took place, what year did Babylon destroy Jerusalem? Anybody remember? Yeah, 586 B.C. And remember, B.C. works backwards. So 586, and then it's going to work down towards zero. Okay, so 586, Babylon destroys Jerusalem, and Edom participates in it. We read that in verses 11 through 14, how they stood aloof. They're just standing there kind of as a spectator on the sidelines, watching their own brother get destroyed by the enemies of God, Babylon. They stand there, and then they start participating. They raid the cities. They uh, kill the, the refugees, etc. And that's why it's an oracle of judgment on Edom. But um, we saw this, our overarching outline of the book. We had verses 1 through 14 is God's vengeance on Esau. He gives his sentence first, and then the crimes. And then we have verses 15 through 21 that transfers it not transfers, it transitions to thinking about God's victory for Jacob. God's victory for Jacob. And that is a victory, part of which is still future to us, like we talked about last week. 
these land promises that God has made, he will still fulfill those in the future. But we also, we see verse 15 says, the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. And so we really get this picture in which Edom, okay, remind me, how many of you are like a little nerdy and like grammar and language stuff? Okay, like three of us. Okay, I won't, okay, five of us, good. I won't talk too long about it. But Edom, just uh, think about the similarities even in our English word to the name Adam. Edom, Adam. Sounds pretty similar, right? They're, in Hebrew, they're extremely similar. It's uh, not that you care too much, but it's uh, Aleph, Dalet, Mem for Adam, Adam, and then it's Aleph, Dalet, Vav, Mem for Edom. And so we have this play on words where Edom becomes a miniature scale of what judgment God is bringing against all of mankind. What God does in Edom's case, justice because of their mistreatment of God's people, because of their crimes and their pride, God is going to bring the same sort of justice for all nations, for all people of all time. Judgment is the Lord's. So he's going to judge the nations, which is bad news for those who have aligned themselves in opposition against God, but it's good news for God's people Israel and for all those who take refuge in Jesus the Messiah. We talked about that a few weeks ago in Psalm 2. Remember that? It talked about the nation's rage, the people are plotting against God and his anointed, and God laughs. He holds them in derision, and he's bringing destruction against them. This Messiah, God's anointed, will dash them with a rod of iron. Remember that? And it ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that is the good news for us. The bad news is if you align yourselves against God, God's judgment, his wrath, is impending. God doesn't forget sin. He doesn't let sin go unpunished. But there's safety in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus satisfied God's justice so that those who believe on Christ, our sins can be forgiven. As Romans 8 says it, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And just like Obadiah it shows us this pattern of God's justice and God's mercy, so also that justice and mercy applies to us. <clears throat> so here's our outline of 19 to 21. We had 19 and 20, we talked about last week, the restoration of Jacob's land. But now, verse 21 is talking about the restoration of Yahweh's rule, the rule of God. There was a time when God, Yahweh, was the king of Israel. Do you remember that? When was that? Yeah, prior to King Saul. From the formation of Israel as a nation, when he brings them out, and God appears to them on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and following, God becomes king of the nation. But then the people demand a human king. They look at the nations neighboring them, and they say, we want a king. He, they're cool. We want a king like them. And from then, they take God off the throne. He's not their king. They want a human king. But God will one day rule and reign. Oh, that's cool. Let's talk more about that. Okay, let's walk through the text here first. He says, Saviors will come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. Saviors. Okay, what does this word remind us of? What is a savior? John? Jesus. Okay, Jesus is a savior. Amen. The savior. Jonathan? 
He took it. Great minds think alike. Peter? Yeah, that's exactly the idea. So we have, in our mind, we think of Jesus, rightfully so. He's the Savior. But the same word, it means to deliver. And the idea, we, let me just read to you Judges 3, verse 9. When the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And if you remember the book of Judges, it was Israel would sin against God by worshiping idols, and so then they would go and they would be oppressed by their enemies for a time. And then they would cry out to the Lord, God, save us, we're oppressed. And God would raise up someone we call a judge. That's why the book is called Judges. And they were a leader, a ruler, a deliverer, who would then throw off these oppressive bondages of their enemies. You following that? This is the same word. It's the same idea. Deliverers. People who would come and bring deliverance. Okay, so deliverers, saviors, will come upon Mount Zion. This is kind of a cool, um, a cool word picture. They will come upon Mount Zion. Remember, we looked at pictures last week. Mount Zion, why do we call it a mount? Why is it called a mount? Cause, yeah, because it's big, it's elevated. Sorry? Exactly, because it is a mountain. Very simple, easy answer. Because it's a mountain. So to go to Jerusalem, you always have to come up. But come up, to go up to a city is more than just to walk up the street and show up in the city. It's a military metaphor. Um, it's a metaphor meaning to take the city by military conquest. That's the idea of it. We could go and look at some other references. I can give them to you some other time, and you can look it up for yourself. But uh, that's the idea. They are militarily capturing the city, this fortified city. Remember, they didn't have Mount Zion for a long time. Hmm. Okay, but why are they taking Mount Zion? What does it say at the end of uh, that line? Saviors will come up on Mount Zion to do what? Yeah, to judge the mountain, to judge Mount Esau. Okay, remember what we just talked about, the judges in the book of Judges? What was the job of a judge? To judge truth. In the book of Judges, though, they were not just a judge rendering verdicts. It's more than that in the book of Judges. What else did they do? Isaac? Uh, just like they delivered the people of Israel out of the oppression of the penalty, they judged the people of Israel, but they also judged humans. Yeah. Yeah. Adrian? They judged during the execution of themselves. Okay, that's one way to look at it. Zach? Exactly. That's exactly it. So they, were, they had a twofold job to deliver the people from enemy bondage and then to help lead or to rule the nation, the nation of Israel. That was their job. And that involved political leadership, helping govern the nation, making things run smoothly. But it also, a judge, if they were a good judge, was supposed to lead the people in worship of the one true God, which would help them not end up in bondage again. Are you following that? So same thing here. The saviors will come upon Mount Zion to judge or to rule the Mount of Esau. Oh, are you following that line of thought? 
it's talking about how God is going to bring Esau under the governance of Israel. Okay, now we get this ending line, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Um, it gives the idea of ownership. This word kingdom, it carries the idea of a dominion. Okay, so the dominion is going to belong to Yahweh, the one true God. Now, try to put yourselves in the shoes of the ancients. Remember, anytime they went to battle, their gods in their mind were going to battle with them. And so whichever nation won the battle on earth, they believed that their god was then stronger than the other nation's god. Are you following that track? Okay, so then what does that mean? If God allows Israel to be destroyed by Babylon, what do they think? Whose God is stronger, the God of Babylon or of Israel? Jonathan? The God of Babylon. Exactly. Probably that Babylonian God. They had many gods. One of them was Marduk or Chemosh, who's the God of the Moabites. What these Israelis picture it, they think God has forsaken us. God is not as powerful as we thought he was. He couldn't even defend us against these other foreign nations. Think about how much hope they've lost at this point. Yeah, exactly. They're probably starting to lose faith right about now. But God says, no, no. And God promised this. We looked at it a little bit. Um, God had promised that they would go into captivity if they chose to disobey God's covenant. Remember back in the book of Deuteronomy, we looked at that so they should have known it was coming because they were disloyal to the covenant. And yet, they are. They're losing faith. They're losing hope. They're discouraged. All hope is lost. And then Obadiah ends this book. He says, God is going to bring judgment against Edom. God is going to restore Jacob to his rightful place. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. God is the one true God. He's more powerful than the gods of the nations. Are you following this theology? this truth that Obadiah is teaching? Think of how profound that is. And like I mentioned, Israel had said, we don't want God anymore to be our king. Back, that's actually back in 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto you. They're asking for a king. For they have not rejected you, speaking to Samuel, but they have rejected me, God says, that I should not reign over them. The people said, we don't want God as our king. And yet there's coming a day when God will indeed rule as king. Okay, and then these saviors or these judges, they have delegated authority as rulers among the people. But where did they get their authority to rule Mount Esau? From God, the one true king. Are you following Obadiah's thought line? It all centers around how God is king. And the Edomites have offended the high king of heaven by cursing and destroying his chosen people. And so God brings justice and judgment for them. And yet then he brings restoration for his people and he establishes his rule. And we realize that's still future to us. God is king right now. But we all get a choice of whether or not we will bow the knee to King Jesus. But there's coming a day. We'll talk about that. But here's a question for you. From where 
Is God going to rule? Sorry, I'm not keeping up with my slides. From where does Yahweh rule? Does he rule here on earth or in heaven? Somebody help us out. Maybe take some clues from the book of Obadiah. Anything that stands out to you that would tell us. Is God going to rule from earth, from heaven? How do we think through this? Okay, a very diplomatic answer. Isaac? Yes. Amen. Good. Who had their hand up first this time? Zoe. I don't have to choose either of you. It's Zoe's turn. Yeah, from the New Jerusalem. It's good. What were you guys going to say? The New Jerusalem? Zach? Isn't that cool to think of an omnipresent being being king? It's like nothing's going to escape his all-seeing eye. Yeah. Amen. That's how you can take order you know, even with the Yes. Sorry? <laughs> All right, should we, let's look up a couple texts. So just look back to Obadiah 17. As Isaac brought up, it talks about upon Mount Zion there will be deliverance and there shall be holiness. This is speaking of the literal city, Jerusalem. He says there will be holiness. Now, what is the only thing that can bring holiness to an unholy place like a city that's been desecrated? Okay, we got to bring back holiness. Who can give holiness? God. God's presence, remember Exodus 19 to the end of the book. They build this wilderness tabernacle, a tent where God's presence is going to dwell. And God says there's very specific instructions for this tabernacle. Why did he give such specific instructions? Why were there so much details? It's because God's dwelling must be holy. Because God is holy. So for there to be holiness in Jerusalem, how does the holiness get there? God has to be there. Oh, God has to be there. Zach? Well, also because, you know, he has the It's true. Yeah. Okay, let's look at another text. Let's uh, look at Ezekiel 43.7. John, go for it while we turn. He's all-powerful, all-present. Okay, Ezekiel, it's a few books before Obadiah. It goes Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. So we're in Ezekiel 43. Who's got it and wants to read for us verse 7 for us? Jonathan? 
Ah, so where does it say God is going to set the soles of his feet and dwell forever? According to Ezekiel 43.7. Yeah, in the midst of the sons of Israel. That's right. In the midst of the sons of Israel. Um, and you can, you can look up those Joel references. Those also speak of the same idea of how God is bringing his presence to Jerusalem and it's from there on his holy mountain that he will rule. Okay, so that's interesting. We often think of God ruling from heaven, but he's going to bring his presence to earth and rule from right here on planet earth, Mount Zion. Okay, but... Hmm, sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Okay, so let's think, let's think for just a moment about something that I like to call the test of a prophet. And it's not original with me, but... Um, let's go to, let's go to Deuteronomy 18. If you've got your Bibles, go to Deuteronomy 18. We'll capture some big ideas in Deuteronomy 18. And while you're going there, Adrian, you had your hand up. Um, so when you say it was vaguely familiar, do you think he's talking about the end times when he's talking about that, or is he talking about two different times at the same time? Mm. Good question. I think end times are definitely in sight, how God brings judgment on all the nations, any rules from earth, but there could be what some might call a near fulfillment as well. We're actually going to talk about that in just a second. That's a good, that's an insightful question. Okay, so Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 13 brings the same ideas to bear, um, but let's look at Deuteronomy 18. Look at verse 20. Well, We've got to pick up the context. Verse 18. God says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto you. He's speaking to Moses. And will put my words in his mouth. And he will speak unto them all that I will command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Okay, that tells us this prophet's words, if they're speaking God's words, they're authoritative. you got to listen to them. Verse 20. But the prophet, which will presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that will speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? He's going to give us verse 22 as a test. How do we know a false prophet from a true prophet? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follows not nor comes to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So we got two tests of a prophet in those verses we just read. First of all, a true prophet must lead people to worship the one true God of Israel. If they're leading you to worship other gods, Deuteronomy 13 says, even if they give you a sign that comes true, don't listen to them. They're not from God. They're false prophets. So first, a prophet must lead people to worship the one true God. But second... A true prophet of God must have a 100% accuracy rate. If they have one prophecy that does not come to pass, that it's not fulfilled the way they said, 
then they are a liar. They are a false prophet, and they're not from God. Are you following Deuteronomy, what it's teaching us there? And then um, I'll let you look up 1 Corinthians 14 and 2 Peter 1. But in 2 Peter 1, Peter talks about how he had this experience where he saw the glory of Jesus Christ on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? Jesus, he's seen in his glory. And who's there with him on the mountain? Isaac? It says Moses and Elijah. That's right. No, wait. Yeah, Moses and Elijah. And then then Peter, James, and John. Exactly. So these disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they see the glory of Christ. And then Peter says, in verses 20 and 21, he says, But we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well to take heed. He says the scripture has a higher priority than our experiences. The scripture has a higher priority than our experiences. Even though Peter saw the glory of Christ, Transfigured on the mountain, he says the scripture trumps that. All prophecy must conform to what God has already revealed in his word. Okay, are you following that? Those are the three tests of a prophet. Now, let's talk about Obadiah's track record for just a minute. Does Obadiah meet this test of a prophet? Well, he predicts the destruction of Edom. And Edom was destroyed. 586 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed. Edom participates Um, And Judah is taken off into captivity to Babylon. A new king comes on the scene in Babylon. His name is Nabonidus. Um, Nabonidus comes from Babylon and he destroys Edom in 553 BC. Just like Obadiah predicted. How long is that? Like 33 years? That's not very long. Obadiah predicts this. And in these people's lifetime, they see this destruction of Edom that Obadiah just predicted. Are you following that? Not only does scripture record that this was going to happen, but this is something called the Nabonidus Chronicle. It's something that we found, not we, that archaeologists have found, where Nabonidus, they were writing down the things Nabonidus did, his conquests. And it records Nabonidus' triumph over Edom. Can you see that a little bit? Now, I can't read that. So don't quote me, but I have looked at the translations in the English a little bit. So pretty cool. God's word was fulfilled. Obadiah, he prophesied of Edom's destruction. But did he also say Judah was going to be restored? Well, yeah, he did. In 538 BC, just another 15 years later, um, King Cyrus of Persia. Now Persia has come on as the dominant empire. And Cyrus... Ezra 1 records this. Cyrus said, all of these Judah, all these Judeans, all these Jews, they can go back to their homeland. And so they do. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah record that. How they go back and over time they begin to rebuild the city, they begin to rebuild the walls, etc. And so, as Adrian pointed out, there's a partial fulfillment of what Obadiah predicted. And now we have Israel in their land. But they're not inhabiting all of that land like we talked about last week from the river Euphrates down to the Nile. So we have the fact that there is coming a day of ultimate restoration. There's coming a day of ultimate restoration. Uh, Take your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to finish it out with this. As you're going there, we have, I'd encourage you sometime, read Revelation 19 through 22. Or read the whole book of Revelation. 
But Revelation 19 through 22 recount how Jesus is going to return to planet Earth. He's going to destroy all of the enemies. Those who march against Christ will be destroyed. They will be slaughtered. Jesus will rule and reign on planet Earth for 1,000 years. And then Satan will be permanently thrown into the lake of fire. And God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And forever, God is king. It's incredible. John? That's right. Amen. He's going to bring glorification to us. Praise the Lord for that. Okay, but look at Philippians 2. Um, start in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In other words, here's the practical application. We need a mindset of humility where we don't think of ourselves better than the people around us. Instead, we esteem or we consider one another more important than ourselves. He gives the example in verses 5 through 8 of Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. So Jesus Christ, he is God. He lived in heaven with God until he took on human flesh. And he lived on this earth. And then it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Paul in Philippians 2 says, Consider each other more important than your own self, because that's what Jesus did. That's why he came from heaven, became a man. How humbling is that for the king of all of creation to take on human flesh, to veil his glory in this ugly thing we call a human body. And not only did he humble himself by becoming a man, but he died on the cross for us. But then, verses 9, 10, and 11. Wherefore, because Jesus humbled himself, God also has highly exalted him and given him, name, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Realize, right now, Jesus is king. He's been exalted in heaven. He is the rightful king of all of creation. And yet, as I think Zach pointed out, right now, Satan, he has some delegated authority, and he's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians. Did I get it right? Was it you, Zach? Good. But right now, it's optional. You have the option to bow your knee to Jesus Christ. But one day, the option will no longer be there. Jesus is king, and every knee will bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see how this brings it full circle? It says the kingdom will be the Lord's. Indeed, Jesus will reign. Jesus is king. Right now, we have the opportunity to understand his love for us, but also his lordship. But there's coming a day when it will be too late. 
And if you have rejected Christ's offer of salvation, you will be among the nations who receive the judgment of God instead of his mercy. The mercy is available, but if you reject it, you'll be judged. Are you following this? So that's how Obadiah ends. It's this beautiful extension of God's mercy. It's available to all of us. I'd encourage you, think about that. If you've not accepted God's mercy to you through Christ, I would implore you, that means please consider it. If you want to talk about that, all of us leaders are ready and willing. That's what we're here for. All right? Let me pray and we'll close and be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for this evening and for this truth that you are just. You do not let sin go unpunished. And yet, Father, you are also merciful. And you have made a way through Jesus Christ shed blood on our behalf that our sins can be forgiven and we can enjoy forgiveness and eternal life. And Father, we recognize that there is a coming a day when we must bow the knee to Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd help us willingly to do that today. Thank you for that opportunity you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.